Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. As we think about all the violence in the world this week, we, we long for the peace and the safety and the security of your kingdom of love. We ask that your spirit be poured out into our hearts, transform us, but also be with the, the many families this week that are struggling and suffering with the, with the violence that's occurred. Pray that, uh, that your peace will be known and lives will be transformed. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in the uh, quarterly, The Role of the Church in the Community. And the title this week, Justice and Mercy in the Old Testament, Part 2. We did Justice and Mercy in the Old Testament, Part 1 last week. And so, can someone recap, other than me, what we discussed last week and the summary of what Justice and Mercy that we, that we you know, what, took away from our lesson last week. Anybody, anybody want to recap that for us? The terms were synonymous. The terms were synonymous. Justice and mercy, synonyms. How come? How, come, how are they synonymous? Justice is setting things right. That's merciful. Justice is setting things right or doing what is right or doing the right thing. And it is merciful to do the right thing, to do the just thing. Okay, that only works, though, under what, what construct? God's law of love and help. That's right, God's design law, how he's actually built reality to work. It doesn't work under human law. Under human law, under imposed law, under a system of rules that have no inherent consequence, then that's not justice. You heard this week, president got on television, talked about justice. We were going we're gonna to seek justice. What, what did everybody understand he meant by that? We're going to bring them to justice. What does it mean to bring somebody to justice in in a human law construct? It means to inflict punishment upon them. We're going to punish them. And sadly, many people, when they read justice in the Old Testament, they think that's what it means. It means God working to inflict punishment on people. That's not what it means. Justice justice in God's system is, is delivering the oppressed, healing those who are sick, freeing those who are slaves, doing what's right, and setting free those who choose to reject his mercy to reap their free choice. That's the just and right thing. It's right and just to to leave people free. But what happens when you choose to separate yourself from God? What's, What's the outcome there? This is the kingdom of law. This is the mercy that we see. Uh, in God's in God's design, so mercy for those of us after Adam's sin who are born in some of the Bible descriptions dead in trespass and sin, conceived in sin, uh, so forth in Psalms fifty one. Born in this condition, God's mercy then is not the infliction of punishment on an innocent so he can let the guilty off. God's mercy is sending His Son to fix and heal what sin did to His creation, to redeem, to restore. And through Christ, we have remedy that we wouldn't have. It's interesting the lesson delineates justice and mercy in the Old Testament, implying that it's somehow different in the New Testament. I think many people do see it that way, don't they? Sure. They either make the mistake of, well, God's justice and mercy in the Old Testament must be what his justice and mercy is going to be in the New Testament and then in the kingdom to come, so he's going he's to have to inflict punishment on the wicked. Or you can see it a better way and say, you know what? God doesn't change, so the justice and mercy in the Old Testament must be just like the justice and mercy in the New Testament. So we have to come up with a different paradigm. And so what happens in the Old Testament, and you, I hear this a lot, uh, in the Old Testament what sin required was an animal sacrifice. Right. In the New Testament, we sac- he sacrificed his son, and so the animal sacrifices aren't needed, but it was through animal sacrifice that sin was taken care of in the Old Testament. And I hear this on radio and talk shows, uh, Christian talk shows all the time. But the Bible's clear on that, if you've, if, you've read, if you've read your scripture. In fact, we'll get into some of those texts from the Old Testament, which, which are in the lesson today, that actually talk about sacrifice he doesn't want. Animal sacrifice was never anything he wanted. What he wanted was a change in heart for the people. So, a lot of things that happened in the Old Testament that felt like and, and were stated in the Old Testament to be punishment to the Israelites more like in a disciplinary nature. There's a, a verse where God says, I'm going to let so-and-so take over, and you'll see the difference between the way he rules and the way I rule. And you can see that as a, a, a feeling of punishment for the people who had to undergo that. Yeah, and if, if you look at the Old Testament, there's, there's things expressed in, in uh, multiple different ways. For instance, Saul falls on a sword and kills himself in one place. And in another place, it's described that God killed Saul. 
in that language, God, or God put him to death. And in one place, it's described as Pharaoh hardening his heart. Another place, it's described as Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And another place, it was described as God hardened Pharaoh's heart. All those descriptions are there. How do we make sense of that? The only way to make sense of that is under design law, and you understand how design law works, and God has a role. What was God's role in hardening Pharaoh's heart? Anybody? Think about how the heart works. What happens in the, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Revelation, it says, Christ, metaphorically speaking, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. What door is that referring to? The door to the heart. And what is, what is God used to knock on the door to your heart? The Holy Spirit is the agency, but what's he using? Two things are really primarily used. Truth and love. We are impacted when, when somebody loves us, that knocks on our heart. But also truth. Truth knocks on our heart. Okay? And then when you are impacted, some truth is presented to you, and, you, and you're convicted. You understand this is truth. You have a decision now to make, don't you? What are you going to do with that truth? Are you going to accept it? Are you going to move toward it? Are you going to embrace it? Are you going to internalize it? Are you going to say no to it? Now, if you say no to truth, what happens to your heart? It hard, can't, does your heart harden if you never are confronted with truth? If you never make a decision on truth, does your heart really harden further? Not significantly. So, in the Old Testament, which pagan ruler had more truth presented to him than Pharaoh? No. Up at that point, nobody. That was, that was the most. Moses went over and over again and kept presenting truth, showing the, that these false gods were nothing. They were nothing over and over again. And Pharaoh saw the truth. He was convicted. He made it. And then he went back and changed his mind over and over again. So God's role was presenting truth. Had he not presented truth, Pharaoh's heart wouldn't have hardened. But Pharaoh was left free to make a decision. And his decisions were actually, that's why God hardened Pharaoh's heart by present, presenting truth that Pharaoh then chose to reject and hardening his heart. So all of it's true when you understand how reality works. Let's move on to Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson is entitled, Alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. You ever heard that phrase? We're alive in Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? You'll see a lot of uh, descriptions about this. So I was doing some research this week on this phrase, and I I was in the book Evangelism, page 116, I came across this, this description. It is not orthodox theories not membership in the church, not diligent performance of certain round of duties that give evidence of life. In an an ancient tower in Switzerland, I saw the image of a man that moved as if it possessed life. It looked like a living thing. And I whispered when I came near as if it could hear me. But though the image looked like life, it had no real life. It moved by machinery. Motion is not necessarily life. We may go through all the forms and ceremonies of religion, but unless we are alive in Christ, our work is worthless. The Lord calls for living, working, believing Christians. Hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, you could be in the organized church, you could proclaim orthodox beliefs, you could do all the rituals, communion, uh, tithe paying, um, church attendance, uh, and still not be alive in Christ? Hmm. Consistent scripture. Well, this was a quote from one of the founders of the SDA church found in manuscript release number 3, page 59. And, and starts by quoting Ephesians. It says, The fourth chapter of Ephesians contains instructions which we all should heed. After speaking of the need of unity, the apostle states, quoting Ephesians, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now continue on with the quote after, after the Ephesians quote with the author. To speak the truth in love means to walk in the truth, to practice the truth in the transactions of life, to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called, doing works which correspond to the elevating influence of the truth. It means to have a faith which works by love and purifies the soul, making us alive in Christ. It means to have in the soul the living water which Christ gives, which springs up unto everlasting life. Okay, I want to break this out with you. 
Did you hear in the Ephesians, quoting the scripture in Ephesians, this idea that we need to grow up into Christ? Did you hear that? If you're alive, we're talking about being alive in Christ. If you're alive, if you're a living thing, do you grow? Do living things grow? Do they mature? Do they develop? Do they advance? Do, do, do living things do that? So if you're alive in Christ, then would one of the signs of being alive in Christ that you are developing, you're maturing, you're advancing, you're moving forward in understanding and comprehension and character development and in Christ-likeness, bringing forth fruits, the growing things bring forth fruits, you follow what I'm saying? You're producing, okay, out of a heart of, of love, which is something more than mechanical performance, isn't it? Would growing up then mean one needs to think for themselves? Come let us reason together. Come and reason. Come let us reason together. Remember Hebrews 5.14? The mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Think about that. By practice, do you become a great musician by listening to the stereo eight hours a day? Do you? By listening to iTunes eight hours a day, do you become a great musician? Or if you want to become a great musician, you must what? Practice. If you want to be a mature person, you must practice something. What must you practice? Discernment, thinking, reasoning, weighing evidences, looking for truths, from, separating truth from error. What is the living water? It mentioned living water. That's a metaphor. It's not really talking H2O here. What is the living water referring to? The life of, of that Christ developed and offers to give you through the Holy Spirit. Okay, the life that Christ developed and offers to give you, no doubt about that. But what is the basis of life in God's universe? That Christ developed, if you want to put it into humanity, he put it into humanity. What is that basis? What is the principle of life? Unselfish love. That's right. It says in uh, Proverbs, he who finds love finds life. Because love is the principle of life. This is the living water, the principle of love, the principle of giving. So truth, love, prevailing powers in God's government. We've, we've read those quotes before. This all sounds really good. But is truth and love natural to the sinful human heart, to our fallen condition? It's not natural. The natural position of our heart is to lie. Do you know that? To deceive. To distort. To bend and twist. To deny. Jeremiah 17.9 The human heart is deceitful above all things and utterly wicked. Why is the human heart so deceitful? Why do we tend to so quickly and naturally, automatically without trying, bend the truth, twist the truth, but we can't, really can't bend and twist truth. Truth is truth. We bend our minds around the truth. Why do we, why do, we do that? So we're trying to protect ourselves from a bad impression, from a bad outcome, from a bad consequence. <laughs> okay, did you hear what she said? We're trying to protect us. And what is the motive? What is the underlying drive, if you will, the feeling inside that causes us to reflect so we want to protect self? What is it? Well, there's selfishness there for sure. No doubt, no doubt. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. It's fear. Fear, which causes us to, to, to be selfish, to causes us to protect self, to cause us to not want to look in the mirror. And what are we afraid of? Fear of failure. Fear of failure. We, 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 I, I see this in my office all the time. People that are old enough to be adults and make adult decisions don't want to make adult decisions because they might make the wrong one. And if they make the wrong one, they'll be to blame. And they don't want to be to blame. They don't want to make a mistake. They, they don't want people to be mad at them. So they take the position of an infant. They infantilize themselves. They take the position of a helplessness. They look for somebody else to take charge and tell them because they don't want to be wrong. Or fear of rejection. What if I offend somebody? What if somebody's upset with me? I don't want to be rejected. I want to be accepted. Fear of inadequacy, guilt, shame, fear of not being loved. If people knew my defects, if they knew how I messed up, if they knew how I... I uh, they wouldn't like me. Nobody would really like me if they knew me. On the inside, they, they couldn't like me. So we lie. We don't want to look in the mirror. We don't want to see the, 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 the corruption and the shortcomings in our own character because it's painful to look in that mirror. Yes? I think that's what God loved about David. 
He was full of mistakes, but when confronted with them, he didn't try to hide or, or lie or say, no, it's them or, you know, whatever. He just admitted, you're right. And do you understand when you get your mind around this motive that I'm talking about, and you all know it, you've been there, you felt it. When you've done something, you come up short, you're afraid of criticism, afraid of being found fault, you're afraid of people being mad at you, you've all been there. And do you understand that that traditional theory of salvation, penal substitution, makes it worse? It doesn't help you in this situation. Because under that traditional theory, see, if you've got defect in you, punishment's required. If someone sees it, especially the ruler in charge, if it comes out in in the light of of truth and in the heavenly court, and it hasn't been accounted for in some way, you will be punished. You're going to be punished. Punishment's necessary. We must punish sin. And so you live under that fear of it being found out. And so we're, we're taught how to cover up. We claim the robe to cover, to cover up. Let's cover it up. Cover it up. Hide it. We claim the blood. When God looks, he can't see. We're covering. We're hiding. We're distorting. We're denying through our theology. So we can feel good while we're still corrupt. That's not what David prayed. You said, David, search me and see the wicked way in me, O God. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit. Find what's broken and what's wrong. This is design law stuff. If you were sick with terrible pain in your internal self, uh, lungs, heart, chest, abdomen, something, you went to the emergency room and you, were, you knew something was bad wrong. Bad wrong. The doctor comes in. To examine you, do you say, here's my perfectly healthy brother, examine him, and whatever you find, write it in my chart. I don't want any defects in one of my chart. This is what many people teach in heaven. God looks at, at you. No, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Whatever you find good in him, write it in my chart. We call that the heavenly record. Don't, don't find what's wrong with me. You understand design law stuff. It's find what's broken in me and create in me a new heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Fix what's broken. Heal me. This is why those who take that fear-based approach reject the integrative evidence-based approach. Remember the integrative evidence-based approach? We integrate scripture, science, and experience. All three threads harmonize because when you reject science and you reject experience, you reject how reality actually works. And when you reject how reality works, then you can take scripture and make it support fantasy. It can say anything at that point. And that's why there's so much confusion in Christianity, I got this quote this week out of, from uh, Mark Cox, uh, emailed it to me. Great quote. Listen to this out of Three Testimonies, page 72. What do you think of this quote? A true experience, a true experience will be in perfect harmony with natural and design law. False experience will array itself against science and the principles of Jehovah. Wow, just give me chills. And I never read that one before. Where's it from? Three Testimonies, 72. One of the founders of the Adventist Church, Ellen White, wrote that. True experience will be in perfect harmony. Why will, it be, why will a true experience be in perfect harmony? Because God is creator. He built nature. He built the laws upon which reality functions. And we harmonize with him. We're harmonizing with his creation, his design. A false experience creates some arbitrary system of rules that is not how nature works. It's, it denies science. And if someone is denying reality, like false experience against science, if they do that, are they growing in truth? If you're denying reality, are you growing in truth? And if you're not growing in truth, would that mean a person is not alive in Christ? Because when you're alive, you're growing, advancing. Is that too scary to say? Is that one of those deceitful wicked doctrines that drive people tossed to and fro that we talked about earlier in Ephesians that he's referring to. These doctrines that trap people and prevent them from growing in truth. I think it's a little more than that sometimes. <laughs> I think that when you become a new Christian or you're converted quote, to Christianity and you hear the wrong thing being said and then you're not able to quite make it coincide with what you know should be the experience, you know, through the greater design law and so on, 
And you can't quite make yourself tell somebody else what you can't believe you're hearing. Then it puts you in a state of incongruence. You you just can't pass, you can't go ahead and share an experience that you don't really believe should be explained this way. Not only that, you're exactly right, but that incongruence causes an internal tension where people then actually have to turn off a portion of their brain in order to continue to believe because because the things are um, inconsistent or we even should say antagonistic to each other. And so we believe without evidence and we have faith in things that don't make sense because, and we're taught to, to have faith without evidence because the more, the more evidence you have, well, then the less faith you, faith you need is what they suggest. And then you can believe anything. So it really causes people to become unthinking people. They don't grow in truth. They, they, they live in the darkness of, of distorted ideas. Or they walk away. Or they walk away. That's right. And we'll come to that portion of the lesson in a moment about people who walk away from organized systems. I, I hope we'll get to that. Uh, the last three paragraphs in the lesson state, and this is out of um, Selected Messages, uh, Book 3, 199 200. It says, Our acceptance with God, notice, our acceptance with God is sure only through His beloved Son, and good works are but the result of working, the working of His sin pardoning love. There are no, they are no credit to us. And we have nothing accorded to us for our good works by which we may claim a part in the salvation of our souls. Salvation is God's free gift to the believer, given to him for Christ's sake alone. The troubled soul may find peace through faith in Christ, and his peace will be in proportion to his faith and trust. His peace will be in proportion to faith and trust. Keep that in mind. He cannot uh, present his good works as a plea for the salvation of his soul. But are good works of no real value? Is a sinner who commits sin every day with impunity regarded of God with the same favor as the one who through faith in Christ tries to work in his integrity? The scripture answers, we are his workmanship created in Christ unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In his divine arrangement, through his unmerited favor, the Lord has ordained that good works shall be rewarded. We are accepted through Christ's merit alone, and the act of mercy, the deeds of charity which we perform are the fruits of faith. So what does it mean that our acceptance with God is sure only through Jesus? Only through his beloved son. What does that mean? We're only accepted. The sureness of the acceptance is only through the beloved son. What does that mean? How do you understand it? Traditional answers? It depends on which law construct you're coming from. Right. So if there's law, then your acceptance is through the blood Shed blood Christ and the robe covering you. So when you go to the Father, the only way you can have acceptance when you approach him under the traditional view is if you approach him with the right offering, with the right payment. If you don't come with the right payment or the right offering, then the Father won't accept you. That's, that's traditionally how it's presented. And that right offering, the only thing he would accept was the blood of his innocent son that we must offer to him to get his acceptance of us. Which we drain at four times a year. <laughs> With the son, it's an example of way you could take it. I mean, in, in that case, the father let him go and do whatever. And then when he had a contrite heart and he came back, the father wrapped his robe around him, a robe around, gave him a ring. He killed the fatted calf, so to speak, to celebrate the return of the son. But the only thing the son ever did was to uh, have a contrite heart and come back. But weren't those simply cultural expressions of complete acceptance and love? So we're, we're, we're trying to understand. Are you suggesting through the story of the prodigal son that we could be accepted back to the father without Jesus? How Jesus comes into the story is when he opens his heart to be contrite and come back to the father, the father accepts him and celebrates. So where's Jesus in that story? Well, he, he reconnects you to God. Jesus is in the story... I'm thinking. Okay, in the robe. Yeah. Okay, and the robe in the story is symbolic of? A change of character. A change. a change of character, an actual transformation of heart. If you read in the book Christ Object Lessons, it says the robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human advising. When we surrender to Christ, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our desires are united with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. So it, it is a metaphor of the internal transformation that happens when we surrender to Christ. So, so yes, the, Christ is in the story, but many people miss Christ in the story. 
So back to the question that we're dealing with here. What does it mean that we can have acceptance only through Christ with the Father? Is it an offering to the Father, a payment to the Father, a covering over, you know, the heavenly, pulling the heavenly wool over the Father's eyes? When the Father looks at us, he can't see us. He sees Jesus there instead. But we're, you know, declared to be righteous even though we're not, which is commonly taught in some systems of theology, that when you accept Jesus, you're legally declared to be righteous. The Father declares it so even though you're truly not righteous. You're still unrighteous. But God now declares that you are. So God's lying. Well, no, no, he declares you based on what Jesus did, but am I actually righteous? No, you're not, but he declares that you are. See the, the shell game that they play. It makes no sense at all. You've got to turn your brain off because that makes no sense. That's, ar- that's arbitrary law stuff. It's, that's like trying to see God through a human court system rather than how reality actually works. As we put this idea in there about how we come only through Jesus, and it's true, I believe that. I want to show you how it works, though. Let's, let's bring in Paul's writings in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 14. All who sin apart from the law, and he's talking Torah, scripture here. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law, the scriptures, who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who, have, who do not have the law, they don't have scripture. They haven't heard it yet do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law have been written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing even defending them. What is the new covenant experience that all the redeemed are supposed to experience according to both Jeremiah and Hebrews? Hebrews 8 verse 10. What's the new covenant? This was the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after the time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts. What did Paul say these Gentiles who've never even heard scripture have that it shows that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts? Is Paul saying they have the new covenant experience? How can that be? The The whole law is summarized by love. Love to God, love to others. And without even the Ten Commandments, if someone is drawn to, to love unselfishly in the Thule bush somewhere, you know, they are responding to the heart implantation of love. Even though it's not written down, the whole law is love. So how do they come through Christ? That's your original question. You're right, but we need to connect that, how they come through Christ. You see, the, the imposed law construct, the human law construct... Which, which I believe is a false construct, gets stuck on this idea of what Paul's writing here because they see it through a legal process that, in their view, requires the individual sinner to make an intelligent choice to accept the legal payment that Jesus has made so it can be applied to their ledger in the heavenly accounting system. And if you haven't illegally made the acceptance and said the sinner's prayer, then you can't have that legal application to your account. So this is why... There's this idea in much of Christianity that people who have never taken the sinner's prayer can't be saved. That's not what Paul's saying in Romans 2. Design law says uh, that we must remember God is our creator and that sin is, and the condition of sinfulness is deviant from his design. His construction protocols, and we all suffer from that condition. And that God loved us too much to let us go, so he sent his son to fix what was broken, to provide remedy, and all who accept the remedy will be set right. So that he who knew no sin became sin for us, this is Corinthians, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might be righteous, we might be set right, we might might be healed, renewed. So as an example, by the way, if someone then accepts the remedy into their heart and are transformed, renewed, have the law written on their heart, as Paul talked about those people who haven't yet heard it, but they've had it somehow put on their heart, if someone accepts the remedy Jesus provided for them, does that mean they actually have to understand and be able to call it for what it is? Verbally say it. Well, here's an example. Imagine we have people dying from anthrax infection. We have an antibiotic called ciprofloxacin. We'll call it Cipro for short, which is the cure. And all who take it will live. Do people have to call Cipro Cipro in order to benefit from taking it? Yeah, one bill. What happens if they call it rose water? What happens if they take the Cipro, but they call it jungle juice? What happens if they take it and call it Buddha's delight? 
or Muhammad's magic. But they still take the Cipro. What will happen? What happens on the other hand if they take something that's called Cipro, but it's actually more anthrax in a capsule? But that's called Cipro, and they take more, they take more anthrax. What will happen then? But, but they believe they're taking the Cipro. What will happen? They won't get better, will they? They'll get worse. Did Paul talk about counterfeit gospels going out in the world? Did the New Testament talk about even an angel of light comes with another gospel? Yes. There are many people taking what they think is, is the salvation plan of God, but it's more of the, it's more of the infection they're taking, and they're making themselves worse. People who cherish and embrace the truth of God's love, God's truth and God's love, and follow godly love and truth, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and transforms their heart to be like Christ. They're being healed and being renewed. But whenever people choose to deny the truth, say no to the truth, obstruct the working of the Holy Spirit, they stop the healing process, regardless of their religious affiliation. You see the people 2,000 years ago who put Christ on the cross. They had all types of religious ritual that was right, legally right, right Sabbath day, right dietary patterns, right uh, um, um, sacrificial uh, ceremonies, right dress. But they didn't partake of the actual remedy, so their hearts were not changed, and they ended up as enemies. Yes? In Matthew 23... um 15, Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell that you are. Okay, and let's, let's unpack that. Twice as much. You see, a person is once the son of hell. In other words, once lost, going to die separated from God, son of hell. When they are ignorant of God, disconnected from him, don't know anything about him or his methods. And that's the people who they're trying to convert. That's once the son of hell. But what were they converting them to? They were converting them to a false system that presented God in a false light as an arbitrary dictator who will punish you if you don't do what's right. And so now these people not only are still don't know God, that's where their original position was, they have that hurdle to get over. Now they have a false God construct in their head that they have to get rid of too. So they have two hurdles to get over. They're twice this long. They're trapped twice now. Well, it's hardest to help someone who doesn't even know they need help. And so today we can have many religious people who claim the name of Jesus but promote selfishness and elitism and bigotry and denominationalism and prejudice, denying truth, clinging to rituals without enlightenment, living in the fear of judgment and of punishment. They're not partaking of Jesus, but promoting a counterfeit. So this is out of a book called Desire of Ages. Consider this in light of this, what Paul wrote in Romans 2, this idea that people can come to have the law written on their heart who have never actually taken a affirmative step in the sinner's prayer and said, I accept Jesus as my Savior because they haven't heard of Jesus yet. By the way, before I even read this quote, if you have somebody who says, what about somebody who's actually heard of Jesus but they've rejected Jesus? Say, no, I won't accept him. Can they be saved? Ask the question. Yes. Ask the question. Tell me about the Jesus you've rejected. Because Christ said many false messiahs will go out in the world. How about if the only Jesus presented to them is one of the false messiahs and the false Jesuses? Would that take them away from the true Christ to reject the false one? Or would it put them closer to the true one to reject the false one? So just because somebody says it's rejected Jesus doesn't mean they've rejected the true messiah. You need to unpack that. So there's the quote from Desire of Ages. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Pause. If they don't know anything about theology, haven't heard the scripture like Paul says yet, they haven't heard the law, they don't know what's taught in God's word, how can they cherish his principles? Where do they discover his principles from? What's the source that they are uncovering his principles? Nature. Nature. The other two threads. The other two threads, science and experience. Yes, let's keep going with the quote. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness before the words of life had fallen upon their ears. They have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. What, what does that describe? What, what functionally is being described? When you show to help somebody at the peril of your own life, what, 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 what law is now in action? Other-centered. Other-centered love. Selflessness. Greater love has no man that he 
give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. And we ought to give our lives for our brothers, for God to love the world, that he gave his only begotten son. What you're seeing here is the law of God in the heart of a person who's never even heard about Christ yet. This is what you're seeing. Keep on with the quote. A martyr would be anyone who would give their life in love for their, and you can have a martyr for their own beliefs. And people can be martyred for any cause, not just for the cause of good. There are many people who are martyred for the cause of evil because they, they won't give up their beliefs and they die for their beliefs. Continue with the quote. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly. Those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. Wow, that's exactly what Paul was saying. Just says it a little bit different language. Now, is it possible for such a heathen to be transformed to love others without Jesus? That's our question. Because No, it is not possible. Any more than it was possible for the person with the anthrax to get well without the antibiotic. They may not know what to call the antibiotic. They may not be educated about the antibiotic, but they still have to take it. It's still through Jesus. How is it still through Jesus? Two ways it's still through Jesus. According to Scripture, which member of the Godhead was it that was the agent for the creation of nature on this planet? All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was the agency of the Godhead which made this creation. Therefore, if you see God in nature, which member of the Godhead put it there? So you're coming through the evidence Jesus provided that way. Second way. What's the Holy Spirit applying into your life? The perfection procured by Jesus. His perfect character. So here's a quote out of the same book, page 671. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that Jesus could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this, see if you believe this or not, without the Spirit, the sacrifice of Christ would have been no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes partaker of the divine nature. See, Christ procured a perfect human nature. He wrought out a perfect human character. The Spirit takes Christ's achievement for all who trust him and reproduce it. So it's no longer I that live, but what's the scripture say? Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and right spirit. We get circumstances of the heart by the Spirit. It's internal transformation of motive, desire, method. But it's all through the... So it would be like saying, the Spirit takes the Cipro and gives it to us and applies it to us. See, when you take the Cipro, it's doing something in you that you cannot do for yourself. But you didn't develop the Cipro. Somebody else developed it. Christ developed this remedy, but we partake and the Spirit applies. And the verse of the Beautiful. The Spirit takes what Christ has achieved, what's mine, perfect character, perfect harmony with the Father, and He re- makes it known, He reproduces it in you. Beautiful. So, what about this idea that faith without works is dead? Ever heard that? We're talking about faith now, but faith without works is dead. How is that true if we're healed only by the remedy that Christ came and we have no work in that process? If we're saved only by the work of Christ, then how is it our faith without our work is dead? How does that work? Well, first you have to understand what faith is. Hebrews 11, 1. 
faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not, things not seen. And the Greek word for substance, you guys know this already, we'll just go real fast, hypostasis, the first half is hypo, as in hypoglycemic, hypotensive, hypo means under or low, stasis means standing, translated into Latin, Faces are substance, subway, submarine, subterranean. Sub means under. Substance, stance. You take a standing. You stand somewhere. You take a standing. Translated in English, faces are understanding of things hoped for. Now, what's understanding? Understanding has two definitions. They both apply, and you need both for biblical faith. The first is it does it does require comprehension. You have to have some comprehension of God, your condition, your situation, your need for Him. You have to have some comprehension of His goodness. So there, there's an understanding, an understanding of reality there, but there's another element to the faith that if you just have the comprehension cognitively and understand, that's not faith. It's, it is that, but you have to have this other piece. Let me give you an example of what the other piece is. Let's say you fractured your leg and you end up in the emergency department. You're in pain. The orthopedic surgeon comes to you and says, hey, I can set the bone in your leg. I can do that for you, but I can't do that without your permission. I need your consent. And after I sent the bone, if you give me consent, I'm going to give you antibiotics that you're going to need to take for five days and then do physical therapy. Are you willing to do that? Do we have an understanding? See, biblical understanding is that agreement that we have with the creator that we understand our part and his part and we are working together with him. Now, what is our part? Think about the orthopedic surgeon. Does your work set the bone? Does when you take when you but does your permission is it required in order for the surgeon to do his work? Will the Holy Spirit do work in your broken heart without your permission? No, you have a work to surrender to give permission. That's your understanding. That's your faith right there. Next, when you take your antibiotics, do you have a work to do to partake of the antibiotic? But when you do, does the antibiotic now do something in you you cannot do for yourself? Yes. Did you make the antibiotic? Did you work to create it? No. That's part of it as well. But we have to partake of it. And when you do your physical therapy, follow the prescription plan by your doctor, do you provide the life energy that knits the bone back together? You don't do that. But what happens if you have this belief that the surgeon has the ability to set the bone, and you understand cognitively the benefit of antibiotics and therapy, but you choose not to take them? and not to do your physical therapy. That's faith without works, and it's dead. It won't result in your wellness. You have to have both your understanding with God and your participation with him. But your participation with him does not provide the remedy, nor do you cure yourself. Yeah. You mentioned in the beginning that we have sources of information that impact our relationship to God. One of them was the Bible, one of them was the science, and one of them was the experience. Right. Now, here on Monday, title, it says, The Flowing River. And notice what is going on with the temple that is... Wait, 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 wait. Can we just wait? Let me read one paragraph, and then we're jumping to Monday, and we're going to do that. Okay. One paragraph... And to finish up what we were just talking about with this cooperation with the Holy Spirit, this is out of Desire of Ages 466. It says, In the work of redemption, there is no compulsion. No external force is employed. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, man is left free to choose whom he will serve. In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to Christ, there is the highest sense of freedom. Now notice this next sentence. This is where that cooperative stuff. The expulsion of sin is an act of the soul itself. True, we have no power to free ourselves from Satan's control, but when we desire to be set free from sin and in our great need cry out for a power out of and above ourselves, the powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit and they obey the dictates of the will in fulfilling the power of God. You see, that is what we're talking about here. You can't heal yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't transform yourself. But God can't do it without your participation. He will not force a person to be saved against their will. We must partake. We must willingly choose. And there's a reason for this as well. Because of the way he's designed our individuality. Without your free will agreement, without your free will understanding, comprehension, saying yes, 
then your individuality would be overwritten by the power of God and your personhood would be destroyed if he forced it upon you. It's only by your agreement do you retain your individuality while you're being transformed. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions of the character of God is that he is coercive. I mean, you see it throughout. You see it through paganism. You see it through uh, Catholic Christianity. You see it through uh, Protestant Christianity. God will coerce your will to get what he wants when he wants it. Because he's in control. Because he's sovereign, because he's powerful, because he's in control, because whatever the reason is. But it doesn't work. It's a complete gross misunderstanding of, of what constitutes actual freedom. Absolutely true. Let's move on to Monday's lesson because I really want to get to this. So let's read Ezekiel 47, 1 through 8. Here's Ezekiel 47, 1 through 8, and he's talking about the symbolism of the temple. But here it is. The man uh, brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from the un- under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate, and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing the east, and the water was flowing from the south side. Then the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand. He measured off a thousand cubits and then led me uh, through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was waist deep. He measured off another thousand But now the water was a river I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, what do you see? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to to Arabia where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. What's What's this about? What's going on? What is the premises that you're reading this through? Are you thinking literalistically? Or do you remember this is theater? This is theater. This is symbolism. What is the temple symbolic of? Primarily. I think it's got two prime, but the primary symbolism. The presence of God. This is Zechariah 6, 12, and 13. It says, tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name will be, is the branch, capital B. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on the throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Who is this talking about, this branch? And where does he branch out from? From heaven. He branches out from heaven and connects to earth. And at earth, what does he build? He builds his temple. Who's the chief cornerstone? According to Scripture, who's the the stone rejected by the builders but becomes the chief cornerstone? Remember what Jesus said at, at his trial, destroy this temple, and in three days I will... So the primary symbolism of the temple is Jesus, but the secondary symbolism is, both are true, know ye not that ye are a temple, individually a temple and corporately a temple, built on Christ, the chief cornerstone, the apostles, which are the foundation stones, and we are living stones built together in a house of the Lord. So it's both, primarily Christ, secondarily us. Okay, now with that symbolism in mind, What do you think this means? The water coming out of the south, flowing to the east, out into Arabia, which is the desert, and then out to the sea, which becomes fresh water. What does it mean? Cleansing. What's water? Remember, first, what's the water symbolize? Peoples. No, then the water that's flowing out of the temple. The water that's flowing out of the temple. Okay, love. Remember, he said to the woman at the well, if you'd ask me, I'd give you living water. It would flow up over you, out to many. What's this living water? You've all said it already, but... There you go. Truth and love. Truth and love. Okay, and who's the source of truth and love? He's the source. He's the one where it flows. It flows out from Christ, right? If you would, Remember it says, in the, he said to the woman, if you were to ask for me, I would give you living water. Okay, he's the source of this living water. It flows out in the temple, symbolic of Christ. What do you think it means? So this living water, it flows out. Why is it coming from the south, the south side? You remember the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled in Matthew? 
I'll read it to you. <laughs> Matthew 2.14. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled that the Lord had said, out of, uh, through his prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Where is Egypt in relation to the temple? South. south. So Christ comes out of the south. And the water flows. Now, it flows into the desert. What do you think this means? What does the desert represent? The, 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 lack, of the lack of love. Okay, so if the water is the water of life. So what's lacking in a desert is, is, is water. And in this metaphor, it's the water of life, which is the water of love. So the desert represents the earth, the, the earth without God's love. Right? And what's the, do you know what sea that's flowing into? What sea is east of Jerusalem? It's the Dead Sea which is the highest salt content. Okay, and now you, earlier with scripture, what does the sea represent in symbolism? People. And so this is the water from Christ flows out into a dead world, the world of the desert, and brings life to the world, and it flows into the sea of selfish people, the sea of humanity corrupted in selfishness. And when the water of life flows from Christ into the sea of human selfishness, it makes it fresh. It brings life. It restores. And we who are dead in our trespasses and sin brings forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Yes. But he does that by vibrantly living, being a living example of the truth of God's unselfish character of love and demonstrating and, and dissipating the lies by showing God's love in action. He did all that, absolutely. He is the connecting link that actually connected the desert of earth back to heaven. So God's love flows through. And so back to the title of the lesson now. Look at the title of Tuesday's lesson. The title of Tuesday's lesson is The Church, A Source of Life. I would have actually edited that slightly, and I would have said The, chor- the Church, A Conduit of Life. Does that make a difference to you? Is the church the source? No, Christ is the source, but we are the conduit. We are to be the conduit. It's that secondary message. We are a temple built together in a house of the Lord. And so the love, as they said to the woman in the well, is to flow up through us and out to others too. But the source is Christ. We are the conduit through which it flows. Yes. We may use metaphor that we are the conduit, but you can drink water without the conduit. That's right. And so I object to the question, to the statement that the river is the church. Because in the history of the gospel, there were many segments of the church. And mostly they misled the believers. And today, today, we are still fighting the misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the gospel of Jesus precisely in the churches. Well said. Well said. In fact, in Revelation, where does the river of life come out from in Revelation? There's the river of life in which the tree of life is on both banks. And where's the river of life flowing from? The throne of God. Not from the church. The river of life comes from the throne of God. He's the source of life. So that's well said. So the church is not the source of life. It is not. That's Tuesday. Now that's Tuesday's lesson. The church is not the source. It's not the source. That's very important point to make. But the church can be the conduit. And when you think about the conduit, then we want to ask this idea about the conduit. Would the, uh, would the heathen that we read about earlier, who has no knowledge of theology, has never heard of scripture but has the law written on their hearts, would they be part of the church, which is the conduit of life? The water, any conduit uh, uh, transmits or transacts, it depends on its source. So ultimately back to being the source of God. So the heathen who has been renewed by the Spirit, considered a child of God that we read in the other quote, that has the love of God flowing through them, would they be part of the church even though they have never heard of the church or the scripture? Yes. Isn't this interesting? Yes. You know, Balaam talked to God. Yes. Got messages from God. And apparently at the end, Ajakas was teaching him. Yes. You can have a conduit of messages from God, but I'd rather have it directly than from a donkey. Yes. Yes. The conduit can be made of lead. It can be a lead pipe and can poison the uh, the, the water. If you read the New Testament, Caiaphas, in the trial of Christ, actually prophesied truth 
mm-hmm. while he was crucifying Christ. Remember that? Saul actually prophesied some truth while he was doing some things in opposition to God too. Yes. So you're saying since we're the church, anytime I witness to anyone, I'm a, I'm a conductor for life. If you're witnessing the truth in love, because people can witness falsehood. But yes, to the degree you're witnessing truth and love, all of us are conduits of that. That's exactly. As the Father sent me, so send I you. That's what Christ said. You just made my day. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so when we think about the church being the conduit, we've, we've changed the word source to conduit. When the church is the conduit for life, is it a specific denomination that's being referred to here? Or are we talking the church invisible? Yes. The biggest church, the Roman church, challenged the teachings of Martin Luther and said, we don't differ with Martin Luther. He says justification by faith, and we do the same thing. The only thing that we add is that you get from the church. Yeah, they they own it. Yes, we give you the material. Otherwise, we teach the same thing. And so we find many churches that say, we give you the gospel, but you get it from us, not from the Bible. Does this mean that organized denominations are bad things and we should avoid them? It does not mean that. I want to be very clear on this. Um, organizations allow cooperation, support, growth, ability to achieve goals, reach people, um, um, help in hospitals and schools and, and ministries and missions and so forth and so on. Organized denominational churches can do great works for God's cause. I'm only wanting to be clear that salvation is not achieved by membership in a denomination. Salvation is achieved by a heart that comes back into unity to God and allows the Spirit to reproduce God's love and truth in you, and you become a conduit to share that with others. So what would you say to, uh, I hear a lot of people who say, you know, there's, if, if I'm living in Christ, there's no need for me to be a part of a church anywhere. What would be your response there? So, one evidence that a person is living in Christ is a heart is a heart that is actually seeking to connect to use their energies as a resource to uplift to enlighten to enrich to heal to restore other human beings back to a right knowledge and right relation with God so while membership in a specific denomination may not be necessary an institution doesn't necessarily qualify for for salvation, a person who is truly heart with God will be connecting with people, ministering, outreaching, involved in the community in some way for God's cause. They cannot achieve this in isolation at home or in a monastery. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the people who say, I just stay at home and I do my worship at home, that's a selfishness. That's not love. How are you ministering? How are you sharing the good news of the gospel with other people? And how are you being blessed by the flow back? Because that's how it works. As you give, the more you give, the more you receive. And if you're not out giving, then you aren't growing, which means you're dead. You're not living in Christ. To be alive in Christ means you're growing, which means you're sharing, which means you're giving. And the more you give, the more you receive, the more you grow. That's how it works. Design law, law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it and as you exercise it that capacity expands and grows if you don't exercise it if you don't use it you so staying home in isolation you're losing something you're not growing you're not advancing you know if you're isolated against your will then those things can be different because there are people like POWs who are kept in isolation and so forth and that's not the choice on their part to do so so those people are you, still be a conduit there. you can to the degree that you're connected uh, to other people mm-hmm. so wow man I, I wanted to get to Wednesday's lesson we won't get to Wednesday's lesson Isaiah 61 which is preaching the good news to the captives and, and, and the, the poor and the broken hearted and, and uh, maybe I'll just go really really fast okay <laughs> Who, but because the, the good news and the poor, who, the good news, is it the good news about God and who are the poor? Is it the poor that are physically poor? Is it the poor in spirit? The poor in the knowledge? How about the poor that are poor in the gold that is tried in the fire? Talked about in Revelation. That's not physical poor. It's we're poor 
in spirit. We're poor in character. We're poor in the gold that Scripture values. And thus, he has come in to preach good news to those who are poor. There's good news. We can be rich because we can buy from him the gold. And how do we buy from him the gold? It's not by any works. It's, a, it's an exchange system. It's a barter system. We trade our corruption for his incorruption, our mortal for his immortality, our sinfulness for his purity. We surrender our life and we receive his life. That's what we do. What does it uh, bind up the brokenhearted? Would it mean creating, would, would the bind up the brokenhearted mean creating new hearts in people who have broken their hearts in the sinful, selfish world? Would it be circumcision of the heart by the Spirit? Would it be writing the law on the heart and mind that we talked about earlier? Is that what it really is talking about? Or is it just comforting people who are mourning so they feel better? I think it's much deeper, much bigger, much broader. I think it's rebuilding the character of the heart to be like God. What about setting the captives free? Would it be people who are captive in fear and selfishness and sin? People who are captive with addiction? People who are in bondage of destructive habits. Would it be free to love, free to live in harmony with God's design, experiencing the last fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is self-control. We are free to be in governance of ourselves rather than governed by our fears, insecurities, and addictions. And what about release from darkness and despair? Would it be the darkness of the misunderstanding about God, the darkness of a penal legal system, and all the other lies and misunderstandings that hold us in bondage, enlightened by the truth? My gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus has come to set us free, to heal our, our brokenness, to restore in us your righteousness, to transform us back to your design. Well, we ask the Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us so that we can go out of here being conduits of your living water of love and truth in the world around us to be bright lights in a world of darkness. We pray in your holy name. Amen.